Welcome to the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. Here, we shine a positive light on fathers of color and seek out their stories of trial and triumph while gaining insight on what it means to raise children in this country we call America. A quote from Dr. Franklin Pittman states, Fathering is not something perfect men do, but something that perfects the man. And now, your illustrious host, Lim Gonsalves. What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Lim Gonsalves, a.k.a. Saint, and this is the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. So we always have to have amazing guests. Today is no exception. He is a family law attorney. He's a college professor at National University. He's a deacon at my church, Hope's House Christian Ministries in Granada Hills. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Damon Martin Esquire. Wow, great, great. Thank you for the warm introduction, Liam. Yeah, man. All good, man. You deserve matter of fact, you know what? I'm gonna give it a little bit more. Boom. Boom. I just I gotta it cut off too early for me. It you cut off too my, early for me. My head's not gonna fit my headphones uh, <laughs> anymore. Head will get too big. Thank you, thank oh, you. I man. appreciate it. No, always love to big up, always love to big up the dads, man. And that's why I do this podcast, obviously. But I, I just really wanted to talk to you because uh, for a number of reasons, I mean, you're an amazing father, a faith-based individual, but I love what you do as far as being a family law attorney and being able to, um, and I really want to tap into that and get your perspective on that. So I'm asking the first question I typically ask all of my guests. And that question is, how did your life change when you first became a father? I'm sure all your guests probably start off with the same thing. It was like a radical change from going <laughs> from, you know, just me and my wife and doing our own thing and coming and going as we chose. And then now all of a sudden we're responsible for uh, another person. So really for me as a father, it stuck out like, wow, I really need to be a, a provider. I really need to set a foundation because I'm responsible for the life of a third person. So mm. if I really think about how my life changed the most is probably that piece of, wow, I need to really be on my game as a provider. Mm. No, I mean, and you'd be surprised because everyone's, I want to say their responses are different. I know that um, tip, the typical response is, you know, it's usually a drastic change, especially, you know, when someone is uh, maybe younger and, you know, they've kind of lived their life, haven't really been set in society or really have a career fully moving and then they become a dad and then it's like, oh snap, you know, I got to change everything that I do. Some people are more grounded. So it, it all it all differs. But yeah, everyone is different. When you say that you had, I want to talk more about you said you had basically to kind of hone in and you had obviously this individual that you had that you had to care for. What was that feeling like initially? Initially I'm prepared. I mean, yeah, we read the books and we talked to other couples and we thought we knew. But when you are actually in the moment, really feeling like, am I qualified to, you know, raise and take care of another person? Mm -hmm. uh, so at, after getting over that initial shock, then you kind of get into the groove of doing things. But I think initially it was like, wow, am I really qualified to parent uh, a, a small child? Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting <laughs> and surreal moment for sure. Did your, did your wife feel the same way or was it just you? So she felt the same way, but a little backstory to kind of put it in context. Our son is adopted. So we got him. He was exactly three days old. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And at the time, a lot of the women in our church were on the East Coast in New York going to a, a, a play. So my wife was out of town. And we knew we could get the call at any moment. But Liam, we'd been in the in the ready mode for months. So mm-hmm. one wouldn't expect it's going to be this one weekend when my wife was out of town, right? Ah. So, you know, I get the call and it's literally, we have a son for you. Do you want him? And they called my wife first. And my wife was like, yes. And then she called me and was like, you have to go. And I was like, well, you were going to go or we we're going to go together. <laughs> she was right. like, you have to go. So my cousin had given me a, a car seat. So I put the car seat, not in the car, like ready for a baby, but just like in the back of the car. So I take the car seat down to the to the hospital. And literally the woman was like, you're here. Yes, sign here, sign here. Here's the baby. And we walked to my car. I didn't know how to put the car seat in. She put the car seat in. I'm holding my son. I lock him in and we go. And she's like, all right, take care. And to me, that was such a radical introduction to parenthood. Like, okay, you are ready. So driving home, you know, he was asleep. Everything was fine. I got home and my wife, of course, is still out of town. Um, So now I'm, you know, parenting solo. And so I did what any intelligent person would do. I called my mom. I was like, mom, you got to come because <laughs> you know, what do I know about parenting? So <laughs> right. you know, she comes and we kind of manage things until my wife gets back. So I think my wife was slightly more prepared, but still because she, you know, she didn't have the whole nesting period, you know, in the mm-hmm. buildup, it was just like, boom, you parent day one. So I, I think there was a, a moment of shock for her too, until, you know, her instincts took over and, and mm-hmm. everything worked out. Gotcha. Do you mind talking about why you decided to adopt? I think she and I both had the same spirit initially. Uh, you know, when you're courting, you're like, oh, yeah, I would adopt. But, but it, I, I don't think either one of us at that time thought, okay, we would actually adopt, right? Mm. It was just something that yeah, we're open to it. Uh, mm. We had some struggles with fertility um, going uh, into it. And we both felt like, well, we really want to take uh, a black boy out of the system um, and bring into what we thought would be a loving environment. And then one thing, just it just kind of spirals and steamrolls because you say, yes, we want to do it. And then they just kind of take over. And, and before you know, it's one thing going to happen. Now that, oh, my God, we're really going to be parents. Right. Mm. So I think initially it was just something in your spirit. Either you have it in your spirit or you don't. Some people just can't adopt. And that's that's perfectly fine. But I just think it was mm-hmm. just something in my spirit and her spirit. Wow. I think that's admirable. I mean, people come to that degree of, of adopting for numerous reasons. Uh, like you said, it could be fertility issues. It could be, you know, various reasons. I know some people have foster children. I know my mother, even though she had all of us, five kids, uh, but she would have foster children. I know some people get to that through that uh, avenue. So um, the fact that that's something that you both uh, decided you wanted to do, I think is 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 really, and especially the reason um, is really admirable. The reason of wanting to take a, a child of color out of the system is amazing, it, and it, and it should be uh, it should be praised. I want to shift gears and talk about uh, your career as far as being an attorney, uh, a family law attorney, and how that perspective can give insight on, because I know that just because I know you personally, and I know that you champion certain things and when it comes to law and people of color, and obviously there's tons and tons of injustices, you know, in our system, uh, in this country. And so, uh, and I know you speak out about that a lot and I appreciate um, what you do and coming from your perspective of being an attorney um, and knowing the law. But um, can you talk about what does, what made you decide to get into family law and how that 
obviously transcends into being a father. So initially I was working for the County of Los Angeles and what I was doing, I was enforcing child support orders. So as family law goes, I think that's like the lowest rung only because you're dealing with highly confrontational issues, mm, right? right? Every father has a story similar to she's trying to take all my money. And every mother has a story similar to he's not doing enough. He's mm-hmm. not providing support. So you hear different variations of that same story every single day. Having dealt with that for four and a half years, I knew that that's an area that I wanted to practice more specifically in and try to help guide people back to some kind of place where they can co-parent. The relationship is, is frayed. It can't be reconciled. So be it. But that doesn't mean you mm-hmm. can't still co-parent. And just seeing that every day really put an idea and a bug in my own spirit that I don't ever want to parent that way. I don't think my wife and I will ever split, but if, even if we did, <clears throat> I know we wouldn't be as confrontational as some of the things that we see uh, every day. Mm. So I see the worst of it. Most of it is because young people don't know how to parent. You know, mm. it's interesting. You want to drive, you got to get a license. You want to practice law, you got to get a license. You want to be a barber, you got to get a license. You want to be a parent, go go have relations. <laughs> right. No training. No, uh, and I really think society does it uh, a misjustice for all of us. Where they, you don't have any training. It's not in the school. It's nowhere. It's just you uh, lay down with a woman and a baby was created. So now you're a parent and don't have the life skills to, to be a parent. To take care of that child. And so what you would see in, um, like you said, uh, in dealing with that system, that's the typically what you would see as young people uh, with children that they haven't been taught how to raise. Exactly. And it's the whole gamut. It, it's budgeting. It's it's time management. It's mm-hmm. uh, conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Uh, we, we don't teach those skills anymore. Um, and so you see a lot of mostly young people who are at each other's throats uh, because they just can't they can't co-parent. They can't get along. They can't. The other thing is, Lynn, they can't get past the hurt of the relationship. Mm-hmm. The relationship broke down for whatever reason. Maybe he wasn't unfaithful. Maybe she was unfaithful. Whatever the issue is, we can't get past that hurt, that trauma. And so it gets poured on into the child, into the relationship between the parent and the child. I, uh, I just know for me, I never wanted to be in that situation. I never want my kids mm-hmm. to be in that situation. You know, the, the worst thing there is, and I deal with this, is when Christmas comes up and you got to exchange at the police station. You know, mm-hmm. I can't think of anything worse than, you know, me, my mom and my daddy are so angry at each other that I have to split my Christmas between two households. And oh, by the way, I have to do this exchange at a hostile environment like a police station. Right. So we really want to try to avoid those scenarios if possible. I, it kind of harkens back to um, when I, before I moved to LA, I worked for the San Joaquin County and I worked, uh, my last job there was uh, a child protective uh, service. Basically, I was <clears throat> a supervisor of a clerical staff. So they would support the social workers for Child Protective Services or CPS. And so, but we would also um, work closely with the attorneys that were there um, that were, you know, hired by the county and part of that staff. I just remember seeing those reports, those court reports, and hearing some of the stories from some of the social workers, even some of the attorneys that, you know, we were that we would support. And it was just, I just couldn't imagine. And I'm not a parent. I've said this many times on this podcast, but just being a parent, I just couldn't imagine not wanting to take care of a child. 
like not having the desire to be like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just negate this responsibility because I want to do X, Y, and Z. And I just can never understand getting to that point. In your expert opinion and from what you've seen, why do you think something like that can happen? I really think oftentimes we weaponize children. Looking at, at moms first, a lot of the cases I see, moms are weaponizing their children where, uh, and you hear this sometimes even in media, you, you know, you no good like your daddy, you're not going to be mm-hmm. anything like your daddy. Mm-hmm. So we see a, a lot of weaponization uh, and a lot of fathers feel like the weaponization that also is just, it's just a way for her to get some of my money, right? Mm. Uh, I don't want to have to pay her child support because she's only going to use it to get her hair and nails done and go to club or whatever. So we see a lot of that thinking. We could debate whether that's true or not, but we still see a lot of that thinking across the board. And it causes a lot of parents to say, well, I, I don't want to be involved. When I speak to fathers, I try to encourage their involvement. And oftentimes I hear, well, she won't let me or she makes it difficult for me. I guess after a while, people just feel like I'm, she doesn't want me to be involved and let her do it. The mom may feel like she doesn't. he's not letting me be involved. He's moved on to a new relationship. I let them have the responsibility. Wow. Yeah, I, that's that's really sad. Um, I hate that that is something that happens, but it's obviously, you see it. It's part of um, what happens in our society. Um, I want to shift gears again a little bit and talk about kind of your upbringing and uh, when you, you know, was a child yourself and, and coming up, what was your childhood like? So uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, two-parent household. Both my parents worked, you know, the typical latchkey thing, you know, where you had the key around your neck. The really good thing about growing up in a predominantly Black neighborhood is that I knew all my neighbors up and down, you know, the block. And so your neighbors would snitch on you, right? And so they would tell your parents (laughs) if you were acting inappropriate, they would look out for you. So there was that built-in sense of community that I appreciated that as a younger child, but as an older Mm -hmm. child, you know, when it came time to sell candy as a kid, you remember that? Uh, Or Mm -hmm. or I would push my dad's lawnmower up and down the block and and beg my neighbors, let me cut their grass. So that was my experience growing up. My father was very, he was a military man, very much, you know, no nonsense. You're going to do these things. And my mother, more traditional, even though she worked, she still did most of the caretaking, cook, cleaning, picked us up, dropped us off. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my experience uh, growing up in, in Los Angeles. Gotcha. Have you adopted, I know you said your your father was a military man. Have you adopted any of the principles that he used in raising you that you now raise your children? So I, I do. One of the things that I didn't like that my kids hate is I give them chores. As a kid, my father literally would take these post-its and they would run down like the length of the refrigerator. So you need to do all these things before I get home. Uh, And that was just our routine in summer. Uh, When school was in on the weekends, and my friends would know after a while, don't don't come to Damon's house, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. I got to get these chores done. So I'm not going to be done until like after 12. So he was very much like, you need to wash the car, cut the grass, Uh take out the trash, do these things. And so I have passed that on to my kids as well. They don't like it now, of course, but I think in time they will like it. Um, the other piece that I adopted from my father is he gave us an allowance. So okay. I give my kids an allowance. And I just think you need to have money to understand money. You need to go down to the market and have not have enough to buy something. And then, okay, what am I going to adjust? Because I'm not changing your allowance. 
Right. So you're gonna you're gonna have to change your habits. Either you're gonna have to learn to save, do something. So I think we as as particularly as people of color, we don't teach money enough. We don't teach about money. So uh, I'm very insistent upon giving my children some money, not a lot of money, but some money to have in their pocket to, to get the experience and get mm-hmm. the knowledge. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that people of color don't teach that principle? It's a couple of things. One, we don't know. So we don't do it because we don't know. Uh, and then there's just like this taboo about money for us. You know, don't talk mm-hmm. about how much money you have. Um what you buy, what you have, those things are so taboo. There's a fear that, you know, maybe someone's going to try to get over on you because they think you have money. But we don't educate ourselves enough about money as opposed to other communities. And so I, I think we put ourselves at a disadvantage. Listen, at our church, you know this. If we have a seminar on dating or men mm-hmm. and men and women conflict, bust it out the seams. You can't stand the room only. <laughs> right, right. We have a seminar on financial literacy, <laughs> crickets. Yeah. <laughs> you can't true. you can't get people to show up that is true that is true so it's unfortunate and, and uh, we are going to have to continue to work to change that I, I mentioned earlier about how you know you're an advocate for you know racial uh, injustice regarding you know things that have happened you know i know uh there's been obviously countless i don't even want to name because there's so many the most recent one i can think of just off the top is the ahmaud arbery situation and those people uh, were found guilty. When you look at that aspect of how our system of justice, being an attorney, and how obviously it's extremely flawed, we are seeing some resolution, but it's still super far from where it needs to be. How do you speak to that? What do you what do you say to that? And what do you think are things that we can um, that can be done to to better the situation? A couple of thoughts come to mind. Uh, I have a cousin who's a also a college professor and because he's a college professor full-time he bounces around from school to school that's kind of what you do in that industry what his wife was telling me every time they go to a new community she walks her and her her boys are tall like me she walks her tall boys around to the police station and say hello officers i'm so and so these are my boys they're good kids hmm. if you see them doing anything call me and i'll come hmm. get them so one of the things that we could do is engage in the system a lot of us feel like, well, the system is not for us and we mm-hmm. disengage. And I think we should do the exact opposite, become more engaged. You know, when I talk to our church and other places, I always encourage us to, you know, when you get that jury slip, don't throw it away. Don't do everything you can to get out of jury duty. Mm-hmm. Do the exact opposite. Get on a jury. Have your voice be heard in that jury deliberation. Wow. Uh, there's nothing I never worse. thought of it that way. Yeah. You know, it's nothing worse when you're a trial attorney and you're your client is African-American and every African-American who's on a jury pool has an excuse why they won't serve. Mm. And so then you're not getting a jury of your peers, you're getting a jury Mm -hmm. of others who are making decisions and outcomes. Uh, I really want to encourage us to to participate in the system. And then, you know, our church and other, other places do this, but we have to teach our children how to interface with law enforcement, what to do to try to stay out of contact with law enforcement in in a negative way, you know, how do you address them? Yes, officer, no officer, make eye contact, make sure they can see your hands, you know, no sudden movements, those kind of things. At the end of the day, I tell people, you want to survive the encounter. And so we have to teach our children how to survive the encounter. And here's the other thing that people don't like to do. We don't complain about bad service. They're still service employees, right? They still are city government employees. So if you mm-hmm. run into an officer and you have a bad experience, 
you have every right to go to that to station complain about it. and make a complaint about it. Hmm. And they will do an investigation and maybe it will go somewhere or maybe it won't, but for sure it won't change if we don't bring it to the attention of the higher ups. That's really interesting. I, I, I never thought of it that way. Well, first of all, I, the jury thing has got me because I'm not even going to lie. I'm one of those type of people. I get that jury summons and I'm like, how can I not do this? <laughs> what excuse can I think of or what excuse do I have that I can say or use to get out of this? And I never thought it of it in the sense that, no, I should be on that because, again, for that very reason, you know, someone that's uh, uh, someone that looks like me is on trial. I need to have my voice heard. I don't want it to be reg- regulated to someone else that may not have the same look as as that individual. I appreciate you saying that because I know there's a lot of people too. Probably most people think of like I don't want to because you think it's a waste of time, you know, right. or what have you. Or you got you know at work, or you got all of these different things that you can think of. You just don't want to be there. You just sure. don't want to be there. And so it makes sense of what you said also about making complaint, because I don't think um, I don't think a lot of us think of that. I mean, a lot of us, people of color, we ha- we're jaded about the police because of what we've seen happen. We've seen the injustice. I don't know how you feel, but I, I, sometimes I don't blame people. I don't blame people of how they feel because you see the injustice. Not saying that every police officer is bad or wrong or indifferent. I think there's uh, amazing people out there that are in law enforcement. Unfortunately, the bad ones are the ones where these tragedies happen. So I'll say that. But I've never thought to be like, hey, I had a terrible encounter. Let me go the extra mile to complain about that officer or explain complain about that situation so that way something can be done. And that's something that I think we all should look at. Do you think that a lot of people feel that their voice is not going to be heard because of how they look or because of their socioeconomic status or anything like that? Yeah, I'm sure that's what it is. And I I hear that all the time that uh, they are going to take my complaint serious um, or what have you, or they're, they're going to rally around each other, you know, and, you know, the blue shield kind of thing where we're, Mm -hmm. we're all going to stick together. Uh, But still, we have to make our voices heard. Um, and so I, I strongly encourage people, if you have a bad situation with an officer, mm-hmm. then, then make a, make the complaint. Along with, you know, jury duty, there's a duty and obligation to vote, right? Our voter yes. turnout is historically low in our communities. Uh, and we have, to, we have to change that. And we always think about the vote, oh, the, who's going to be the president. But it's what we call the down ballot, which means you get mm-hmm. down to people like the judges. Mm-hmm. And it's that judge who sits is going to make that day-to-day decision is going to impact our community. The president may do something and it may impact you. Nine times out of 10 is probably not as as molecular as what this judge may do in mm-hmm. sentencing, et cetera, which will have an immediate impact on you as an individual and us as a community. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Speaking, since we're talking about people of color, um, how important is race to you when it comes to raising your children? I mean, it's just something that, that we can't avoid. Mm-hmm. Even though these are uncomfortable conversations, particularly because, you know, we live in, my kids go to a diverse school, so they have diverse friends. But still, uh, I have to remind them, they may be able to get away with things that you can't get away with. And that's just the reality you live in. There are going to be Karens out there who are going to look mm-hmm. to do things. Uh, so we have to protect ourselves. So I have mm-hmm. to train you and give you the skills So we talk about race. I don't want to just focus on we shall overcome in slavery. 
But let's look at Egypt and other civilizations that pre-existed slavery. And then let's look at some champions out of slavery and even to present day. So uh, my kids love Obama uh, and they grew up knowing only a black president. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of them because they only seen <laughs> a black man in the White House. Right. I just think it's crucial that we have these uncomfortable conversations with our kids about race and race reality. I remember one time my cousin was going to school in Irvine and I went to go visit him. And we, mm -hmm. were, we were going to this party. We stopped at like a 7-Eleven. It wasn't a 7-Eleven, but a convenience store like that. And it was a bunch of it was a bunch of kids, college kids. And they ran in the store and they started picking up bottles off the shelves because the clerk was in the back. Mm. And I grabbed my cousin. I was like, this is not for us, bro. Mm. Because all those kids who were Caucasian will probably get away with it. But the second mm. you grab something, beep, beep, Right. We're going we're going in. So right. it's it's those kind of choices that we have to teach our children about that racist plays a role in everything that happens in society. Mm -hmm. nobody wants to admit to that, but that's just the reality. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I um I I really think it's important that those discussions um happen and those discussions are open. You talk about, you know, our church in particular, and I know that um, in, in since I've been going there, I know that that has been a topic that has come up, that has been discussed, and I appreciate it that it's it's come to the point where we can talk about it openly, and it's something that, because we know it affects us, but um, I don't want it to be something that is taboo and something that, uh, oh, we shouldn't discuss because, you know, we don't want people to get the wrong impression or we don't want, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I think it's, I, I do appreciate that we do that at the house and also in, in homes that parents are doing that. And more so, I think, you know, the example, use George Floyd as an example, that was so magnificent as far as the reach, you know, because of uh, it was international and it was during, you know, the height of the pandemic and people were home and people, you know, they were paying attention. They knew what was going on. Not to say that that's the only time something injustice happened, but it just hit so many cylinders. And so I do notice that there was somewhat of a shift from people talking to their children and people uh, of all walks of life having open discussions about race and race relations and the police and all of these different things. So I hate that a tragedy has to happen for that, you know, to take place. But unfortunately, that's, you know, sometimes how it goes. You know, those those events are are good opening, if you will, to have those discussions with your children. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt a little bit ashamed as, as a parent, Liam, because I was trying to make sure I was okay with George Floyd, right? Ah. And, and and just digesting and working that through Damon. And mm -hmm. I was like, I never talked to my son about that. Hmm. And it, it, it dawned me until like a couple of weeks later, like, I need to maybe help him process it. But I'm right. still, you know, processing it myself. And I was like, <laughs> and so I had to have a discussion with my son. We actually went on a walk. I was like, you know, I'm sure you've seen the video and, and mm -hmm. you know, how do you feel about it? And so we, we talked about it and, you know, he was understandably upset. But yeah, those conversations you just have to have. And, and uh, like you said, we don't want to use this tragedy, but the tragedy, maybe the upside of that tragedy is you can use it to talk to your children about right. what's happening in America. Can you talk a little bit? I just want a, a glimpse. Um, I'm going detail, but what that discussion was like. Like you said, he was he was upset, but what what were his emotions that he was giving to you? You know, he he has a spectrum of friends. You know, mm -hmm. uh, because he he he's goes to a school with it that's diverse, what have you. So he has 
he has friends who are Caucasian uh, mm-hmm. that, that were very supportive, which I thought was pretty good. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't see the whole video because he thought it was just too much for him to to digest, which mm-hmm. I understand. Sure. Uh, but he couldn't avoid it because it was everywhere, as you recall, at the time. He was upset, but he, he drew a distinction between, you know, all cops and, you know, all mm-hmm. white people. He drew a distinction, which was good. But he was concerned uh, and uh, he didn't want to admit a fear, but I sense it was a fear that if it could happen to George, you know, could it happen to me, you know, and what to do. So we had to have a discussion about, well, if you have contact with law enforcement, here's what you should do so that Mm -hmm. that situation hopefully doesn't happen to you. No, that's great. That's, that's really good. That's really good. Can you talk about just real quick about some challenges that you may have had in raising your children? And uh, I want to kind of see the scope of, like you said, you have a son and daughter, correct? Right. Is your daughter adopted as well? No. Okay. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you've had in raising your children as it is, uh, as, as your, your preset now? My challenges are a little bit unique because my child's on the spectrum. So he's a special needs child. My son is. He's high functioning, so he doesn't require, you know, handholding necessarily, but mm-hmm. he does require a fair amount of redirection. That creates it's only the challenges and parenting to his unique needs. And listen, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be an okay parent, mm-hmm. but I wasn't trained. You know, I didn't read about parenting for a special needs child. And mm-hmm. we didn't know he was on the spectrum until still early in his childhood, but not right away. Right. Gotcha. So we had to educate ourselves, you know, get support groups, you know, get therapy, uh, and therapists around him to kind of help him get the resources he needs. So the parenting initially was a bit of a challenge. Teachers don't under always understand, administrators don't always understand that his behavior is a result not of him being disobedient mm-hmm. or standoffish, just the way that his mind and body works. Right. So that did create some challenges. Even for me, it's like today I'm like, is he being a jerk? as a teenager or is this something with his physical makeup? Right. And so I don't always know which one is which. And you don't want to discipline, you know, the disability. That's not fair. So he creates his own unique challenges around parenting him. And then my daughter, who is, you know, a typical learner, Mm -hmm. but, you know, she's a girl. um, She needs her own time. She needs her own Mm -hmm. space. And so how do I parent to her unique bent and still give my son what he needs. And right. the squeaky wheel gets to gets the oil sometimes. And what does that mean? My son sometimes gets more attention mm. than he probably should mm. because he needs a little more focus. And so I and my wife try to make sure, is our daughter getting the short end of the stick? Gotcha. Is she getting as much time um, that she needs and the resources that she needs to be successful? So really finding that balance is a literally a day-to-day struggle some wow. days it's all about him because he needs it and mm-hmm. some days you're like you know what bruh you're gonna have to just work it out she needs mom and dad mm-hmm. so really trying to find that balance I, I tell my kids i know i did a good job if you just need a little bit of therapy you're gonna need therapy <laughs> <laughs> as an adult but if right, i just right. get you to, you only need a little bit of therapy <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> then i think i did my job i did a good job <laughs> yeah 
That's key. I mean, and obviously the more children you have, the more complex I'm sure that it can be because especially when you have every child is a different personality. I know, like I mentioned earlier, like my mom and dad had five of us. So, and we were all different. None of us were the same. So being able to raise and, um, and focus, like you said, well, today I'm focused, you know, you need it. Like you said, this wiki will gets the grease, the grease, excuse me. And so, um, but it's interesting how that works because it has nothing to do with how much you love your children because you obviously love your children equally. But the fact that the needs that need to be met by, you know, certain standards, it's kind of like, well, I don't, it's kind of like when, um, and I'm only, cause you know, we're both believers, but it's kind of like when Jesus looks at us, you know, and, um, it's like, all right, I need to, I need to deal with uh limb today. You know what I'm saying? Cause he really, he's, he needs it. Like you're, you're, you're okay over here, but he, he really needs it. He's, he's going through it. Let me, let me, let me get on him and, uh, and help him out, you know, type thing. So that's kind of how I see the correlation. Um, and you can yeah. tell me if, if it's any different. No, I, I think that's correct. And I grew up playing basketball, you know, mm-hmm. like every day, like I was a passion of mine. My son has no interest in sports. He's yeah. like you. He's an artist. So how do you engage where he is and try to enjoy the things he enjoys? He really loves video games. I can play video games for a couple of minutes, but I, I'm not going to do two hours like he does. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So right. really trying to meet, you know, him where he is. And, you know, my daughter is an atypical girl, Barbies, mm-hmm. and, you know, so she wants to do those, those kind of things and trying sure. to engage her where she is and what she enjoys. Sure. But, you know, when you think about being a parent, oh, yeah. I'm going to throw the ball at my son. You know, we're going to play mm-hmm. badly. And that's just not going to happen. You know, <laughs> so get, you know, getting past the disappointment and then again, not trying to push what you love, what you think into him because mm-hmm. that's just not his makeup. Right. And, you know, you don't want him to feel less than because he doesn't like or enjoy things you like or enjoy sure. doing. Sure. So no, absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a struggle. I'm making it sound easier than what it really is. Mm-hmm. Trust me. <laughs> no, I I can only imagine, bro. I can only imagine. Last thing I want to ask is, uh, you know, typically ask my guests uh, what advice would they give. Obviously, you can give twofold: being an attorney and working in that construct, and also um, being a father and a parent. Uh, what advice would you give someone, you know, that is maybe wanting to have children or is expecting? Like, what would you tell them? You know, from the legal standpoint, as much as possible, stay out of the system, mm-hmm. right? It's far better, and even those of us in the system will tell you, it's far better if you, the parents, can sit down and work out a schedule, an agreement. How are you going to co-parent? If you can do that, you're far better off. A, a quick story, when you are going to court and you're waiting for your case to be called, the, the court will make you go to mediation. So you sit in this big mm-hmm. room, this is before the pandemic, and on the screen, Liam, would be this... 30-minute videos on loop. The hmm. first 15 minutes are horror stories. My parents hate each other. It makes me feel bad as a kid. I go to an event. My mom sits on one end. My dad sits on the other end. So you mm-hmm. hear these horror stories the first 15 minutes. The second 15 minutes are, I used to be that way, but my parents get along now. I feel better as a child. I can mm. see my parents. Again, I'm not saying that these relationships were mended back together, but the, the parenting relationship was mended. And you see the kids disposition is totally different than in the children in the first 15 minutes of the video. So if you can get to that place, uh, I heard a judge made an order. You have to say one good thing about the father in front of the child. Mom, you got to say, you know, vice versa. You got to say one good thing about the mom in front of the child. 
the child needs to hear and see the parents getting along. So if you can keep that in mind, I think for the system's concern, you'll be ahead of the game. What I tell parents all the time is never take unsolicited parenting advice. That's the best parenting advice there is. <laughs> never accept unsolicited parenting advice. No one knows your child the way you do. They just think they do. <laughs> Everyone thinks so they're funny. an expert. Don't <laughs> take it. It should go in one ear right out the other. I got a buddy who goes to our church, good friend. He's like, you should spank, you should spank your son. You know, when he gets out of line, you should spank him. Yeah, that worked for some kids. And it worked mm-hmm. w- well enough for me as a kid. But again, you don't have a child on the spectrum. I do. So spanking is destructive to him. I tried it once. It was horrible results. I won't do it again. Hmm. And then secondarily, how do you know we're disciplining because he's acting out because of his needs or he's acting out because he's just being a jerky teenager? You right. don't know. And you can't always tell. So you don't want to, that, that form of discipline doesn't work. What does work is I'm taking this, homie. This mm-hmm. works wonders. When you take this away, oh, that they get in line real quick. That phone. Mm-hmm. But so you have to, one, never take advice that's unsolicited. And two, parent to the bend of your child. My mm-hmm. child loves this. So I take these away, I get them to get back in line. Mm-hmm. So you, the best advice I give you is trust yourself, know your children, and then parent to their own unique disposition. What worked for Lim, maybe lecturing, didn't work for your other siblings. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure that you figure that out over time, but trust yourself, right? Right. Uh, you know, your children are going to be okay. They'll, they'll sense the love, but right. I just I hate when people give unsolicited parent advice. It's it's never good advice. <laughs> it's never good advice it's, it's because they don't know your children. You know, <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's that's one thing true. if you went to your mom or went to your friend and said, "Hey, give me some advice," but it's mm-hmm. nothing. Just some random person. Lamb, what you should do is, you know, get the switch. Maybe you should, maybe you should, but chances are it's probably not. No, that sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Damon Martin Esquire. Appreciate you, sir. My, been my uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah, this was really good. This was really good. Um, I, I learned some things, some things I had never heard of before. So I really appreciate it. And especially, like I said, the legal standpoint that you have in doing so. I always like to have my uh, guests shout out anything they have going on, direct anybody to social media, if that's what you have or anything like that. The floor is yours, sir. No, I, I don't really want you to direct anyone to anything. I'll provide you with my phone number, email if someone wants to have uh, a consultation has any questions about family law related things. I offer, always offer everyone a free one hour consultation. Oh, wow. uh, I do have people okay. on staff who speak Spanish. So I can be reached at 818-646-2570. Email me at demartinesq at yahoo. Again, demartinesq at yahoo.com. I am so happy to hear that. Um, and of course, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I want to appreciate you um, and always helping us out. Obviously, we have one sponsor today, and that is Miss Pam Howe, one of my favorite people on earth. Shout out to Miss Pam Howe. She is amazing and a supporter of this podcast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Again, this is Lim Gonzalez, aka Saint. Until we speak again, God bless. Take care. Colors of Fatherhood is produced by Josh Rodriguez and Saintly Productions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share with all your family and friends. Please remember to follow us on social media at Stay on the Mic and at Colors of Fatherhood. And for all your booking needs, please visit www.stayonthemic.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next episode.